Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. You're listening to Puma Podcast. August 1945. In the heart of Manila, at the lobby of one of the most successful law firms in the Philippines, a young man is anxiously waiting. Germany had been defeated in Europe two months earlier, but World War II is still in its final days in Asia. The atom bomb will be dropped on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki on this very month, and Japan would not officially surrender until September. But to the 21-year-old man sitting in the waiting room of the law firm DeWitt, Perkins, and Ponce and Rile, neither an end to the war nor the postponed yet promised independence of the Philippines mattered on this day. This day was personal. He is escorted from the lobby of the law firm into an office, and there an imposing, well-dressed lawyer, Alfonso Ponce Enrile, faces his visitor. The young man is introduced as he had introduced himself to those who received him at the lobby, Juan Furaganan. Days earlier, Alfonso had Juan fetched all the way from Cagayan to be brought to his office in Santa Mesa in the capital. But in one respect, they had in fact met halfway. For Juan had been looking forward to this meeting. And in fact, after being driven in a truck for hundreds of kilometers, he walked the final few miles to the office with resolve and purpose. At 21, he is already a survivor of poverty, abandonment, handicapped education, Japanese occupation, and torture. He had been fetched, but he had also actively come by his own power to, for the first time, claim something in a deprived life. And yet, finally given the chance, he is unable to say anything. And standing there, he does not actually move. Instead, it is the lawyer who approaches from behind his desk. He pulls the young man close. Finally, Alfonso Ponce Enrile says, I am sorry, my son. At this moment, to both Juan and Alfonso, this is an illegitimate child claiming the unexpectedly easy embrace of his father. But it is also a moment that seeds the life of one of the most influential and controversial Filipinos of the last half-century. In his autobiography, Seven Decades Later, he would call it a most pivotal moment. The day that Juan Foraganan was reborn as Juan Ponce Enrile. Hello, ako po si Robbie Alampay, Puma Podcast, and you're listening to a special two-part series for Teca Teca News, 100 Years of Juan Ponce Enrile and the Philippines. In time for the 100th birthday of one of the most controversial and influential figures in modern Philippine history, 
we revisit the last century of this country through the life lens of the century-old JPE. Research for this podcast leaned on news archives and Riles autobiography, one Ponce Enrile, a memoir, and for interview elements with Enrile himself, we relied heavily on the library of Pro Productions Incorporated. In February 1924, when Juan was born to a poor remarried widow in a fishing village in Gonzaga, Cagayan, Alfonso Ponzo Enrile was already a lawyer and established politician. Where Juan was born into poverty, Alfonso had always been privileged. He was, after all, a Spanish mestizo, reputedly with French roots, raised in a Spanish-speaking household in the final years of Spanish colonial rule over the Philippine Islands. When the United States became the new ruler over the Philippines, Alfonso became one of the new colonial government's first scholars. He finished high school in America. He obtained his law degree in Ohio, paving the way for a successful career upon his return. He was, after all, no longer just Spanish-speaking. He had a leg up on his English to boot. Alfonso served as a bilingual court interpreter, then as a clerk of court in Cagayan. Eventually, he established his legal practice in Apari, the bustling port city just west of where Juan was born. It was in Apari that Don Alfonso married Rosario Martinez, his first wife, herself a mestiza of a local influential clan. Alfonso parlayed all he had and all he was born into into a successful legal practice in Apari and then a political career. He ran in Cagayan for which he won a seat in Congress, but then in his first attempt at re-election, he would lose as well. Bitter and saying he had reason to be disillusioned with politics, he packed up and moved to Manila. The capital was, still is, nearly 600 kilometers to the south of Apari. The land passage from Cagayan to Manila in the 1920s was rugged and undeveloped. It was more practical to travel south by boat. Apari was itself sitting at the mouth of the mighty Cagayan River its port key to the commercial heart of northeastern Luzon. It was an international trading gateway to the fertile Cagayan Valley. And so it was not like Alfonso Ponce Enrile was fleeing a hopeless, isolated rural province for the capital. Still, in a few years, he would make it in Manila too, as the first Filipino partner in a law firm established by Americans. Between the port city of Apari in cosmopolitan Manila, with its electric trams and cobblestone streets, Alfonso Ponce Enrile objectively was well-off and influential. He had no less than 17 children by six different women. Juan was simply one of the last to be recognized. That Alfonso was nearing his 40s when he was just starting on a lucrative life in Manila, that on its own said something. In the 1920s, in the decade that Juan was born, life expectancy in the archipelago hovered at around 30 years. That was the Philippines Juan Foraganan was born into. Wala kaming uh, eskwelahan, walang uh, 
pare, walang kapilya. In archived interviews with Probe Productions, Juan Ponce really recalled the poverty of his village. Walang klinika. Kung may magkasakit kami, eh, pupunta lang kami doon sa, kwan, sa, sa kabundukan at uh, kumuha ng mga dahon. It was not the Philippines of his biological father. It was the world of his mother, Petra Furaganan, an illiterate widow who had remarried an illiterate fisherman, Macario Rapada. At first, Juan did not know who his biological father was, but he suspected from an early age that it was not the fisherman who married his mother and who treated him along with his half-siblings as his own. Alam ko na ako eh kan anak ng nanigaw iba ako sa kahit na doon sa dalawa kong kapatid na mas matanda sa akin iba ang aking itsura mas maputi ako sa kaysa sa kanila pangalan ko eh iba I was being teased by boys by children of my age mistiso tisoy amin din sa akin eh kadapos ko yan bastardo amin na in his memoirs Enrile believes Petra briefly had an affair with Alfonso as he was campaigning unsuccessfully for a second term in 1923. By the time Juan was born just one year later, Alfonso was already on his way to leaving Cagayan. Years later, the boy would get the truth from Petra. Also for a ganan, yung mga kapatid ko rapada. Hindi, primero hindi ko mo si yung nanay ko. And then finally... Uh, siguro uh, kinukulit ko siya. Nung banda ko rin sinabi niya, alam mo, uh, sabi niya, ang tatay mo hindi taga rito. Ang tatay mo, abogado, na wala na rito, nasa Maynila. It was the decade immediately before the Great Depression and World War I, and the 1920s started as a decade of technological marvels. Jazz, a new genre of popular music in mainstream USA, was wafting through the very first commercial radio stations in America. The loose liberal strain served as backdrop to the revolutionary exploits of Charles Lindbergh, who was proving the viability of transatlantic flights. In the Philippines, on the very year one was born, so too was KZKZ, the island's very first radio station. But Juan and his half-siblings in the household that Macario and Petra raised, they were all oblivious to such wonders and promise. The fishing life was all they knew, save for working as farmhands when seasons called for it. They earned 75 centavos to one peso per day. They were so poor that when he was a boy, twice their mother sent one off to live with aunts, including one who was a teacher, offering him as their own house help. In return, they enrolled him in public school. Parang naging anak-anakan na rin nila. Uh, ako ang taga-luto, taga-linis ng bahay, taga-igib, ng tubig, nagsisibak ng kahoy, panggatong, at uh, naglalaba, o ganun. The boy did all the chores, from washing their clothes to going to market, gathering firewood, cooking their food. And I can see the 
kaklase ko magagandang damit nila. Talaga, meron mga sapatos, nagkatsinelas ako, tapak-tapak lamang. He would recall in his autobiography that in between classes, he would run back and forth from school. At the end of the days, he would read and write by the light of a kerosene lamp. Although this detail was not so much because they were poor, but simply because electricity in the 1920s had not yet reached the majority of Philippine provinces and certainly not their villages in Cagayan. Poverty and the need to work was not the only thing that handicapped and repeatedly interrupted Juan's education. When he was 17, in 1941, Japan invaded the Philippines. Juan joined the guerrilla resistance in the hills of Cagayan. In the final months of the war, he was captured, garrisoned, and tortured. By his reckoning, Enrile says he was kept in a small dark cell for nearly three months, brought out from time to time, only to be tortured. Pinapalo ako ng buntot ng pagi. Mga malaki, dalawang beses ang mga nila linunod sa tubig. Hindi mo maalaman kung anong gagawin mo. Hindi naman ako makagalaw dahil nakataali ako. Nalalanggap mo na yung pan, yung tubig. Hanggang mawalan ka ng malay. Mapass out ka na lang. Pinangako ko sa sarili ko na kung may pagkakataon ako na makataakas, kahit na napakaliit ng chance, ay tatakas ako. American air raids would eventually liberate but also obliterate a pari. And with that came Juan's chance to flee. Juan's fortunes mirrored the changing tides of World War II. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The Germans, throwing heavy reserves of men and machines at the Allied lines below Rome, have again been smashed back. As the world entered 1945, Hitler and Germany were on the retreat all over Europe. By February of that year, Filipino and American forces had liberated not just Cagayan and other provinces, but the Philippine capital itself. Confidently enough that the returning General Douglas MacArthur broadcast an address from flag-raising ceremonies in Manila. And so for all that he had survived, when he showed up hat in hand at his father's law office that day in August 1945, Juan was 21, and he had only finished first-year high school. Don Alfonso not only wasted no time in re-enrolling his newfound son in private school, he convinced the Merinol sisters to immediately place him in third-year high school at the St. James Academy in Malabon. Finally, after decades of disadvantage and deprivation, under Don Alfonso's wing and influence, it would be steady progress from there for the young man whom for years endured taunts of bastardo and who never got anything for free. Juan Ponce Enrile would finish college at Ateneo de Manila by his 25th year 
he would obtain his own law degree from the University of the Philippines just as he turned 29. The new president of the Philippines speaks. My countrymen, you have called upon me. The Philippines itself, meanwhile, was getting its own legs under it. The new republic was just about to turn seven years old. It was 1953. Ramon Magsaysay was the new president of the Philippines. Alto Broadcasting System, that's the ABS in ABS-CBN, makes its first broadcast as the first commercial television station in the whole of Asia. President Magsaysay, the former Secretary of Defense, was charismatic and popular, among other things, for ending the Hukbalahap. The communist movement evolved from guerrilla resistance to Japan in World War II. In Southeast Asia, over the next decade, the Philippine economy would keep pace with that of Malaysia, which at that time still included Singapore, and outstrip Thailand and Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia. In other news of 1953 in Manila, a beauty queen from Leyte is named by Manila Mayor Arsenio Lacson as the city's official muse, while at the House of Representatives, another young local politician star is also rising. Nilocano congressman, by then on his second term, Ferdinand Marcos. It was early in post-war Manila, in this decade of optimism, that law graduate Enrile would briefly work for his father and then swiftly go for his master's at Harvard Law School, taking its international tax program. Enrile recalls in his book some future luminaries that he would see around the Cambridge campus, among them an already famous PhD candidate, a young man less than a year older than him, Henry Kissinger. There was also Oscar Lopez of the rich and powerful Lopez family, future UP President and Education Secretary Onofre Odi Corpus, and a man that Juan Ponce Enrile considered one of his best friends a Sigma Rho fraternity brother at the University of the Philippines, Rafael Paeng Salas. When Enrile returns to the Philippines at the behest of his father to rejoin their firm, it is actually Salas that prepares the more pivotal path for his friend and brud. Salas helped in the campaign for Magsaysay for president. He invited Juan Ponce Enrile to join government, but his friend declined. Enrile did good by his father, joining him in their law firm, and in time becoming a successful lawyer in his own right. His professional life well established, he marks personal milestones too. He meets and falls in love in 1956 with Cristina Castaner, a mestiza who had just arrived in Manila from America. They marry the next year, they have two children, Jack and Katrina, and Enrile writes in his book that his law practice and his life flourished after their wedding. The people of the Philippines make their decision. Close to 7 million Filipinos vote in more than 4,000 districts. As all things stabilized in Enrile's life, his friend, Paing Salas, would be flourishing in politics. A decade after returning from his shared time in Harvard with Enrile, in 1964, Salas would be in the camp. 
of the Ilocano Ferdinand Marcos, by then no longer congressman but already Senate President. Diosdado Macapagal was the president, but Marcos was preparing to challenge in the elections of 1965. In the run-up, the senator personally called on Enrile at his home. The gentleman from Ilocos was trying to consolidate supporters in northern Luzon and he needed someone to challenge the Dupayas, the reigning political clan in Cagayan at the time. Marcos asked Enrile to run for congressman in the first district of his home province. He said, I'm uh, aspiring to be a candidate for the president and I need somebody to run against the Dupayas. And I told him that I'm not prepared to run to go into politics. Ayan sabi niya, don't worry about guns or money. I'll give you money, I'll give you guns to fight the Dupayas. Enrile declined and he returned to his law firm. It was his old friend, Paeng Salas, who returned a few weeks later. Salas was now campaign manager of Marcos and he told Enrile, if you won't run, would you at least help in the north? Juan Ponce Enrile agreed, and for the first time since reuniting with Don Alfonso, he is directly on the opposite side of his father, who supports the re-electionist incumbent Macapagal. The younger Ponce Enrile was by this time a celebrated and influential lawyer by his own right, with strong connections and influence especially in Cagayan. His influence and network is courted by all sides. All candidates and emissaries, but not even the personal pleadings of Makapagal's teenage daughter, Gloria, would sway in really. When Marcos beat Makapagal for the presidency, Salas became his executive secretary. He, Salas, would then go on one of the most famous recruiting campaigns for government in modern Philippine history, assembling for the Marcos cabinet young, bright technocrats for what would collectively be dubbed the Salas Boys. Enrile would not be a frontliner among them, but he would be among Salas' persistent recommendations to government. At first, Enrile declined and dodged attempts to appoint him to the Department of Justice as an undersecretary. But when the newly elected president appoints the cousin of his wife, Eduardo Danding Romualdez, as finance secretary, Romualdez successfully convinces Enrile, the Harvard man trained in international taxation, to become his undersecretary at the Department of Finance. Enrile joins the government of President Ferdinand Marcos. It is now 1965, and it would be an understatement to say that this has so far been a long journey for Juan Furacanan of Gonzaga, Cagayan. And yet, now it can be said that the story of Juan Ponce Enrile was truly just beginning. As he turned 41, this abandoned illegitimate son raised by an illiterate couple in a fishing village was on his way to becoming one of the most influential, controversial, divisive, and notorious figures in more than half a century of Philippine history. Next week, 
In the next episode of 100 Years of JPE in the Philippines, we will continue the story of Juan Ponce Enrile. From his time with Ferdinand Marcos to his unlikely alliance with the unlikely future President Corazon Aquino, all the way to his influence with the second Marcos to occupy Malacanang Palace and his remarkable impact well beyond his 100th birthday. Join us then as we explore how indeed it would make, unmake, and survive president after president and weave a story that casts him as everything from an orphan to a Rasputin that has so far outlasted every friend and every friend that, as we will recall, in time and moments, considered him enemy. Ako po si Robbie Alampay, Puma Podcast. 100 Years of JPE in the Philippines is a special series produced for Puma Podcast Teka Teka News. This episode was written by me with help and editing by Veronica Uyvitug and Jill Carroll. Much of the material and research here are drawn from publicly available records, news archives, and Juan Ponce Enrile's own memoir. All the sound bites from Enrile come courtesy of the Library of Pro Productions, Incorporated. This episode was produced by Pinoy Blanco with supervision from Reynaldo Ramirez. Maraming maraming salamat po.